This is Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hello there, and welcome to Past Perfect, CEU Medieval Radio's show on medieval history and culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. My name is Christopher Milke, and I am joined today by Tanya Tolar. Uh, she is a research student at the School of Oriental and African Studies in the University of London, and she's working on a comparison between Byzantine and Islamic enameled and gilded glass of the 13th and 14th centuries. Tanya is here as part of a um, workshop that is going on called Trading Diasporas, Role and Trade in Diplomacy. This is the second meeting of a workshop series between uh, the Department of Medieval Studies at Central European University and the Transcultural Studies Program at the University of Heidelberg, and that was here on held at October 8th and 9th. After this uh, rather lengthy introduction, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Chris. So um, I would like to start out today, if you don't mind, a brief little word about what you were presenting on at the um, Trading Diasporas uh, workshop. Yes, I was actually looking at a particular set of blue bottles that are timed as Paphos type of bottles, just simply because they have the same typology of glass, the same shape, the same, more roughly the same size, and the majority of which have been actually excavated, found at Paphos, mm-hmm. hence the name for the whole group. And I've been trying to link that with the trading diasporas, particularly the Venetian merchants within the Eastern Mediterranean, mm-hmm. and how their in, sort of involvement uh, spurred not only the trading of the goods, but might also be trading, quote unquote, the knowledge. So the actual technique, how that also sort of went uh, along and ultimately ended up really in Venice in mm. the 15th, 16th century, Venetians took up the gilding and enameling on glass and basically produce the majority of goods and then sell them back to their origin in the Middle East. I see. And so, I mean, glassmaking before the 15th and 16th century had been going on in Venice, yes, but uh, the enameling uh, that you're focusing on is is sort of the new technology. Is, Is that correct? That's roughly correct, yeah. Okay. Um, but <laughs> basically, the, the Venetians started their production after getting into the Eastern Mediterranean, um, exploring the new options, getting the availability of resources because they needed to sort of get the right uh, quantities of sand and the right material in order to have the production started. And at that particular point, enameling and gilding on glass as a technology has already been in full swing in Eastern Mediterranean. So they basically started with that already in, in roughly 13th late 13th, 14th century, but in a completely sort of different typology. The shapes of vessels are different. The iconography on them is different. And probably they also used a little bit different colorants, a bit different Mm -hmm. pigments for for that. 
This may be a, a really silly question, but um, looking at a glass vessel from this part of the Middle Ages, is it possible to be able to look at it and tell, oh, this was made in the Middle East, uh, or oh, this was made in the, the Venetian Lagoon? Is How can one go about doing that, if one can? Right, that's an interesting question, but sadly, it's not that simple. Um, <laughs> Also, it never is. <laughs> yes. Also, uh, what I'm focusing on with my research is actually fragments. So that's oh. even more complex <laughs> because out of the fragments, there are few people in glass research that can actually just spot when they see a fragment to say, oh, that's the rim of, of this kind of a vessel or that might be a handle of this type of a, a glass beaker or something like that. I am um, definitely not that far away with my research to Fair be enough. able to do that. <laughs> um, but there are certain things that can give away whether a material has been produced in the Middle Eastern context mm -hmm. or in in European context. Another thing that uh, contributed widely to our knowledge in the last sort of two decades is the scientific research of glass. So there is a set of people who are very good in knowledge of earthly components and they can do the actual research on what consists, what this glass consists of. I and see. that would give away whether it's been produced in one location or the other. However, uh -huh. again, it's not so simple because one of the major traits of uh, any kind of glass is that it has been recycled. Oh, sure, sure, sure. And it has been recycled from its very early stages on. So they taking old glass vessels and then reusing them to make new glass vessels. Exactly. I see. So, goodness, that that <laughs> delightful complications arise. Um, you mentioned iconography a little um, while ago. Is 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 that one of those things that might be helpful in determining where the current uh, vessel, as it is preserved, and yes, in some cases that is uh, possible mm -hmm. to establish. But the Middle Eastern context, the majority of vessels coming from either Egypt or, or Syria, and I'm talking really exclusively of this type of painterly technique on, on glass. So these vessels were either produced in, in Syria or in, in Egypt. Scholarship is not uh, yet completely unanimous, whether in one or the other. Mm. I'm trying to do with my research and pinpointing where the enameling sort of started or where it took off. And more of the fragmented material that I look at, more I'm convinced it started really in close proximity to Syria mm -hmm. or in that that Levantin area or Turkish Anatolian regions. The, the thing is that these people, of course, were constantly in contact due to the crusaders coming in mm -hmm. uh, with the Western markets as well. So they probably produced for the Western market or at least for the pilgrimage coming in. And they would, of course, like today, they would uh, adjust. Mm -hmm. So if somebody from Europe would be coming in, there is no problem for me to sell a vessel. I'm just going to put some crosses on so that it's going to be see. easier to sell it. Say so very simplistically, but it must have been that kind of a thing. The other thing that I look at particularly closely are facial features, because there is a lot of figurative motifs displayed on, on this material. And you would have facial features that are really not Eastern European uh, or Middle Eastern mm -hmm. or 
European in general or in that Mediterranean context. They mm-hmm. would be Central Asian, I'm particularly sure, because of the way the eyes are done, because of the way the lips mm-hmm. are very sort of thin, eyes are very sort of small, mm-hmm. uh, very kind of Central Asian, even Mongol typology. And that's not so far off. With 1250, Mongols have been conquering these areas. So they must have been, the Ilkhanids started to take off. They must have been influencing uh, the demands in in. in goods as well. But it's not only that that we spot on on the material. We can have people with beards, there's something Mm -hmm. really not typical Islamic, or you would have people uh, with uh, cloaks, just like uh, some sort of priests, etc. So it's really sort of pointing towards Christian context. I see. And I suspect either because they would be sold to to that kind of clientele or because they just uh, sort of adopted to any type of buyers. Well, I think the notion of human figures on Syrian glass vessels is interesting because, I mean, I for, for, forgive me if I ro- I'm wrong, but in the Sunnah, it's very taboo to paint people and to put the 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 image essentially you're you're blaspheming by doing so yeah i'm very glad you mentioned that that is one of the uh, notions that we we held but it's not exactly true okay as long an object or a material is not set within the context of a mosque or a religious context right right you're allowed to paint also the imagery of animals, floral decoration, or, and of human. How very cool. I, I did not know that. Yeah, that's why we have so much material that actually has all these depictions on. Of course, you're not going to see anything like that in the prayer uh, prayer rooms uh, oh, or right, in Mecca or something. But you would have that at court societies. You would have that secular in context. Secular context. Yes, the higher upper middle class sort of a thing. So, mm-hmm. and with the with the 14th century, you would have Islamic merchants as well. They would be getting more and more money in. They want to be uh, surrounded with uh, lavish goods. And mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. kind of a context, this pieces would um, definitely find its place. How very cool. And um, one question that I I, I do have to ask is, um, uh, what sort of type of glass vessels are we talking about here? Do we have any idea what um, their purpose was or what they were used for? Yeah, that's that's one of the toughest questions, really. (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) Um, We have a lot of bottles with very long neck. Mm-hmm. This kind of, they're very sort of globular bottles, so they have this sort of very big uh, lower part mm-hmm. and then very long neck. And there are from uh, depictions from Samara area that would be in the context of the 9th century, 9th, 10th century in the Abbasid court, where there are dancers um, having this kind of bottles in their hands and mm. they would be filling liquids into the beakers. I see. Um, now, here is another problematic question, and I know you're already trying to ask me that. What <laughs> kind of a liquid, and could it be wine? You know me too well. Yeah, well, there, there are. it's a poetry that does speak about that, that in okay. the court rituals they would actually be drinking wine as well. So we are sort of suspecting that some of these bottles could actually be used in court leisurely activities, mm-hmm. among which would, be f- besides drinking, would also be 
dancing and it would be uh, music playing and it would be really one of those 1000 in one night mm-hmm. type of a story surrounding um, spaces yeah and the the the, the ruby out of Omar Khayyam makes a lot of yes, references exactly. to wine yeah in fact um, there are material evidences at least one wonderful example of gilded and enameled cup or if it's a larger cup we call it a beaker is uh, today in the British Museum and Professor Anna Contadini has actually found references in contemporary 13th century poetry and that part of poetry part of it is written on the, the, the glass beaker. So oh, cool. the, the even cooler element is that there is a seated ruler imagery. So um, a man who has cross legs and is seated on some sort of a chair, probably a throne or something similar. And he has movement in, in his right hand is like he's holding something. And that, that seated ruler imagery is really traditional Islamic uh, imagery. And usually that kind of a person is going to hold a, a beaker. So she's suspecting that maybe this beaker that we are looking at is sort of a reference to the beaker that's missing in this um, seated ruler's hands. So it's really play with the visual imagery as long as, you know, referencing to the actual poetry itself. That's absolutely fascinating. Uh, Right before we left for the break, you brought up the issue of the seated ruler in relation to this particular um, beaker. Uh, over the over the break, we were talking about how this is a, uh, it's seen as a very sort of Islamic trope. And one of the questions that I wanted to ask you um, on the show is sort of um, about the origins of this and why it's associated um, particularly with Islam. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very persistent type of imagery and probably actually takes um, takes us back way in time, mm-hmm. um, either to Sasanians, um, Persians, somewhere in that uh, really? localities. But it's not just the, the, the city ruler at itself. It's actually a conglomerate of uh, imagery that is actually consisting the whole uh, motives, motives. So you would have, uh, as I mentioned previously, you would have dancers, you would have these leisurely activities within the court setting, mm-hmm. among which there's going to be this uh, primus um, inter pares as a seated ruler uh, imagery. Mm-hmm. But um, usually it's, it's one case so that you would have one particular ruler very often it's not identified who that person is but it would be flanked with with two people so Mm -hmm. it's really that kind of a royal type of uh, um, iconography and they would have this vellum this uh, sort of uh, fan um, in in the hands so yeah we find it on all sorts of material we find it as ceramics we find it on miniature paintings Uh, we find it on uh, a lot on metal work and uh, we find them also within the context of Christian church, so to speak, in, in Sicily, for instance. So that it did, in a way, cross the borders into a different context. Uh, now, now, why Sicily? Um, well, we find the imagery of a city ruler within the royal chapel for the Roger II, uh, Capella Palatina in Palermo. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, one of many of this kind of imagery within 
the ceiling of this of this chapel. It's been researched, it's been proposed to see many kind of ideas within the imagery. I tend to like to see it as part of the sort of royal confirmation of Roger II as a king of Sicily, because um, the dating would fit in the precise period when Roger was trying to get the Pope confirming him as the rightful king. Because basically the Normans, uh, they were warriors, they came to Sicily, they usurped uh, the space and then mm-hmm. they claimed the island their own. And part of the sort of how they they did that with the church, with the decoration within the church, with the chapel that had double function, and it functioned as a chapel, and it functioned also as a type of royal hall where the diplo- diplomats would come and, and, and meet and greet the, the king. So it, it actually really had this purpose, I believe, at least it had the purpose of showing off, look at me who I am, I rule over the island that is very of mixed population. There are uh, Muslims here, there are uh, Greeks here, so my chapel contains all that because on the walls of the chapel there are mosaics in a traditional manner of the Byzantine Empire executed, and the chapel itself in the form, architectural form, is very much Latin Western European, so it's sort of a combination of all the, the influences, and because there is not one city ruler, there are many at the, at the ceiling. One of the questions is why? Why so many? Right. But the ceiling is so far up that you couldn't even spot really all of them. I think the idea was to take when you stepped in how the feeling was of the whole space. And that's what you've seen. So rather than looking up at the ceiling and say, oh, saying, oh, hey, there's Pete or oh, hey, there's Roger. It's exactly. Just, uh, okay. And the people, sorry to interrupt you, the no, people no, no, would actually, they were asking me, so how w- can you sort of say that this is the imagery and this is the, the reading of, of imagery? Because I think that the local population who are traditional Muslim in majority, they knew very well this kind of motifs. Mm -hmm. They didn't need to spot the individual figures. By very looking at the ceiling, they would know what they are seeing. So it goes into the manner of seeing and what to, to read out of it. Well, and that sort of leads into my other question. I mean, who would have been seeing this at the time of the construction? Would it have been courtiers or would it have sort of been, you know, Everyone from, you know, the neighborhood hooker and, you know, the homeless dude. No, by all means, no, no, (laughs) because it's it's definitely a royal chapel. But again, it's it also worked as a hall for meeting and greeting foreigners, foreign Mm. diplomats. Mm -hmm. uh, So people of means, people that uh, came there in order to meet the king or at least some other court officials and these, again, these are people who are coming from abroad and they needed to sort of get the statement. This is where you're coming. This is the new kingdom and I am the king. Right. And again, these people would also be coming from all the surrounding areas. So either across the sea from Fatimid Egypt or, or from the Byzantine Empire, from Constantinople, they would see the the material that they would actually be very familiar with. 
So either the mosaics in, as I said, Byzantine uh, manner or the ceiling that is done in a very particular Islamic uh, manner. Well, what always fascinates me about medieval art history is the intent and sort of how we see these patterns emerging. And it just continually amazes me, the, 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 the fact that there's so much detail packed into one image. And that detail would have been, you know, obvious as the back of my hand to someone looking in and seeing it. And nothing was done without, you know, just sort of, oh, it looks nice. Yeah. Definitely. Of course, when we are talking about this kind of imagery, we are definitely also need to take in a consideration that these are highly influential people, that Fair these enough, are sure. very educated people. So they would they would know probably, as you said, a street worker, a hooker <laughs> might not recognize all all the, the imageries. But again, sure. they would know a certain imagery. And even today, and that's one of the things that people who look at art tend to sort of I think that's how we are we are taught. If it's not seventeenth century Dutch painting where you can recognize all the courtiers or at that point merchants of particular city or whatever when the um, the imagery is so detailed so nicely executed you wouldn't consider something to be an art or the renaissance period for instance Mm -hmm. today when you see um, Rothko with a little bit of splashes of different types of of reds Mm -hmm. you don't consider that there must be a hidden message behind it but of course there there is so again creative element of constructing art is something that is very interesting and it actually goes through the centuries but in medieval period it was extremely packed with with symbols and it carried the meaning to to these people and if we cannot decipher the meaning today that does not mean it wasn't there right but of course i have to point out again if there is a fish on my glass fragments, for instance, mm-hmm. I tend to find a lot of fishes there. Uh-huh. That could also just mean it's a fish. It does not necessarily have to have some higher uh, meaning being connected either to uh, Christianity or to Chinese uh, a potent symbol of wealth or something like that. But we, of course, art historians very much like meaning, so we t- <laughs> t- dig deeper in order to find one. But need to be aware that sometimes there is just an animal. And I I guess a lot of that would definitely depend on the context and, you know, what else appears with the fish. Yeah, Uh, definitely. And how the object was used. Oh, sure. And very often dealing with fragmented material. We don't even really know the shape of the object, less even what the object actually was. But, you know, we try to figure out from the existing material, and there is plenty of that that kind of lead us into some sort of a conclusion how these objects were used why they traveled how they've been perceived Mm -hmm. going back to the image of the seated ruler for just a very brief second is um it's it's used in the sicilian context which i think is absolutely fascinating in your opinion is it something that spreads to the rest of christian europe or is it pretty or is this something a concept that stays mostly in sicily in this context 
In the context as it is used um, there, I think it stays in Sicily, at least to my knowledge. I, I don't know any other. Um, even within the patronage of the Normans, mm -hmm. uh, there is another church on um, Sicily in Cefalu, which also holds the uh, wooden ceiling, but the imagery is really much less refined. So that's also leading me into believing that the context in which this particular ceiling in Palermo was constructed was really because Roger wanted to have a political statement behind it. I see. One of the questions that I um, had for you has to deal with the provenience or provenance, if you will, sort of w regarding your glass research, where do these objects uh, come from? Where do we tend to find them? Yeah, there's a variety of sort of sources. Mm -hmm. um, the beaker that I previously mentioned with the city ruler imagery mm -hmm. and the quote from the poetry, uh, that was one of the things that probably came to uh, to Europe already with the Crusaders. Oh we have several pieces like that. Um, another one in V&A today is Lack of Edenhall that actually has also a leather case uh, made in particularly for that beaker in order to be transported back to Europe. So they clearly, not only there was a market for this material, but they clearly also value it. They, they knew that this is, you know, something precious and something sure, worth sure, keeping. Sure. The other thing is that what I work on in terms of fragments, mm -hmm. those can come, if we are lucky, from archaeological excavations. Uh, very often, these materials are not published, mm. so that makes uh, my work more difficult. And if they're published, they might be published in a language I do not understand, uh, for instance, like Turkish. Oh, right. And uh, because they are fragments, very often people also don't, in previous sort of decades, in 1920s, 30s, um, when the archaeology was not done the way it is done today, um, we don't really know how many fragments they've actually kept. Aye, um, aye. When I was looking at some of the rec records, um, record notes, uh, there would be just um, a note on a glass fragment, blue color. I wouldn't even know whether there is any kind of decoration on mm. it. I wouldn't have the size. I wouldn't have the location, mm. um, things like that. Sometimes we are lucky in archaeological material and uh, things get excavated in very interesting contexts. For instance, in, in Paphos, which um, was notoriously bad to live in because it got struck by um, earthquakes very often. Mm -hmm. um, in uh, uh, 1222, the earthquake uh, destroyed Saranda Colonnes. And uh, we have um, a find of one of the bottles that I work on that has been found along with the skeleton uh, remains of a man oh who obviously tried to escape the earthquake but couldn't. He tried to squeeze himself through the latrines <laughs> but got stuck there. And in his possession, we found a dagger and um, a lamp and um, a bottle. In the latrines. In the <laughs> latrines, or at least the archaeologies. Um, archaeologists are reporting that that they're supposed to be the latrines, yes. So, um, uh, yeah, so <laughs> I mean, sometimes we're lucky for stories like that, but uh, very often um, not. And uh, very often in the material that I work on, 
um, has actually been purchased from the art market. Oh, oh, I see. Yeah, the problem there is that uh, we have a record maybe of an art dealer, but these were families that were in this business. So you can have a name, but there were a variety of people with pretty much the same name in mm-hmm. Cairo Sooks in the early 20th century. And we have um, the, the people who have started with um, sort of research, glass research in the early 20th century, and they knew each other. So they would even write to each other, oh, this and this um, dealer has new material, go and check it out. So uh, one of the striking things that I come across was I traveled half of the world going to United States and in Cairo and London and Berlin and Athens, and the material I looked at uh, was very, very similar. So the question was either these people bought what the the merchants or art dealers sort of offered them or the glass production of this type was really so anonymous, unanimous. So it would have the same typology of colors used, the Mm -hmm. same imagery used, uh, etc. And um, sadly, at least for now, I do not really have the right answer to, to this. Well, yeah, I mean that, that that's that's not a concern just for glass, but with a lot of objects that came yes. up in uh, sort of dubious circumstances in the late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries. Exactly, and these fragments probably they've been in boxes or in, in bags, just you know, not an item per se as one item, but they would actually be purchased as a quantity, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. we don't really know from which excavation site. So that's that's why because they been very often purchased in in Egypt. It was thought that this production was actually Egyptian invention uh, from Fustat, um, which is now part of Egypt, but it um, sorry part of uh, Cairo, but it mm-hmm. used to be a very prominent and big production center. We know today that not everything was produced there, right. but nonetheless, we cannot really decipher particularly from from fragments that's very difficult sometimes but i like fragments because <laughs> they you know they've been part of a bigger picture they've been part of um, an object that had its own history and it had it, its own life mm-hmm. but that life didn't cease to exist when the the object got broken no, now no. we have a fragment and this fragment is telling its own story and it's of course having its own life now sort of second life <laughs> Along the lines of uh, life or lack thereof, I do have to ask, uh, going back to the, the poor unfortunate fellow in the latrine, <laughs> you said he, 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 he was trying to escape with a dagger, a lamp, and a bottle. Right. Now, I can, I can understand the lamp. I can sort of understand the dagger. Um, uh, but the bottle, right. I think, is, is fairly... Yeah, and of all material, a glass bottle. A glass bottle. Which probably, you know, is something that's going to get broken in, in an earthquake that and destroys the whole place. Yeah, that, that led me into a question, what were these bottles used for? Because oh, right, it, right, it, yeah. it used to be, um, it's a very particular type of a blue glass bottle, very, very neatly, nicely decorated with uh, enameling and gilding. And the size of, of these bottles is uh, roughly 20 centimeter, between 50 and 25. So they thought, the first excavator um, thought that they've been used as uh, sand bottles. 
But I was thinking when the the person is trying to escape and when everything is shaking and whoever ever in in life, if you've experienced what the earthquake feels like, you know, you grab the first thing that is handy and then you start thinking what you can actually use if, you know, something collapses. Mm-hmm. And I was I was thinking, fine, maybe he grabbed something because this is clearly a an, an opulent object and he can sell it later on and if it's perfume in it, it would have value. But he needed to save his life first yeah. and poor chap... He, obviously didn't. So I was thinking maybe there is something different in it that he can actually have um, useful in the event of the earthquake. So I'm trying to propose that uh, these bottles, because the majority of them have been found in church context, actually uh, contained oil or ointments, charism, that kind of a thing. So the oil would be used for fueling um, the lamp, mm-hmm. and he would need light in, yeah, murky latrines. I I see. Well, that 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 makes a little bit more sense rather than you know, g- grabbing a bottle of perfume is not something I don't think I'd grab in the event of an earthquake. Yeah, but as I say, people do strange things when we are under um, unusual circumstances. But still, um, as I say, he would probably be reasonable enough to think if I have a lamp yeah. that has a Lim- limit uh, resource of oil in it. I need something to refill it. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and because this is not just one case of this type of bottles found in church context, there mm-hmm. are elsewhere, like in, in Kotor or in um, Corinth in Greece, this might indicate that this really was for, for that kind of things. And, and that, that, that does make sense in that, you know, light for a church is very, very important. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, but there might be, I have to say, this is a sort of um, ongoing research, so I can't really be completely sure about it. Of course, but of course. there have been similar bottles found along the Volga River and Dnieper, um, all the way up to the Kingdom of Rus and Novgorod, for instance. And um, in uh, talking to the Russian colleagues, they suspect they've been used for pharmaceuticals. Oh, so okay. there, there might be something worth trading, and that's that's really something to to further explore, because these bottles tend to be of completely the same typology, the same color of glass, the same iconography on it. So yeah, something to to think and work on in the future. Definitely, and something that I'm. Th- thinking on and working on for my future is that, uh, well, my, my project is on, on, on Hungarian queens and one of them, we've uh, she was excavated and they recently did a skeletal analysis mm. that, you know, the explanation for the elevated levels of lead and arsenic in right. her bones was the use of cosmetics yes. and yes. Uh, it's funny because I've, you know, and I don't think that the literature that I've read, there's ever been finding a, a perfume bottle or a, or a makeup yeah. um, tin found in Buddha Castle or anything like that. But right. these would have been used and people would have been. Yeah. And glass, them. glass was a material that since uh, ancient Egyptians, they used it to store cosmetics. Mm-hmm. And one of the first example of enameling on glass 
but not on clear blown glass because ancient Egyptians didn't know that. That's Roman invention. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the first examples of enameling on glass actually comes from ancient Egypt, mm-hmm. from very small cosmetic jar. Is is that is that like the 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 faience? It's um it's similar to to it, but I see. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, it's definitely colored material. So it's um, blue, yellow, dark blue type of of glass wrapped around the pontil rod and then shaped into an an object. Um, it's a completely different technique. So you, they would need an object made out of clay, and then they would cover it around with with glass I see. Uh-huh. paste. But not all scholars like the the term paste. So <laughs> I use it here with caution. This is wrapping up a very fascinating show on uh, glass and art history and uh, all sorts of movement of goods and people across the Mediterranean and uh, movement of ideas as well, because uh, the sort of... Um, Final question I wanted to ask you has to do with some of the previous um, shows with Past Perfect that I've done, where I've talked with several art historians and archaeologists um, in the past weeks about um, mythical beasts and imagined Mm. creatures, you know, things like dragons, unicorns, mermaids, and... uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask you, um, uh, since you're um, very much concerned with iconography and images, uh, have you seen any uh, mythical beasts or creatures uh, on your glasswork? Yeah, I was I was thinking you're going to ask me, have I seen ever any <laughs> mythical beasts or creatures? <laughs> like Bigfoot. <laughs> no, yeah. Or a unicorn would be better. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> yes, actually, the Islamic material that I particularly deal with mm-hmm. Uh, surprisingly, it has a lot of uh, imagery of animals, but not many of, at least what I've seen, not many of mythical animals. Okay. I've seen one fragment of, uh, a s- um, yes, one fragment in the Berlin collection that has um, something similar to either a seamorg or a... Um, um, what's a seamorg, if you don't mind? Um, a seamorg is similar... Uh, a griffin. Similar as a griffin. <laughs> yes, it's a similar similar to griffin, but it's different. A seamark does not have... Um, it, it has a different set of the body. It actually either has a dragon type of body, so no legs. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has um, very often a head of um, a dog, while a griffin has a head of a bird. Mm-hmm. And it has a sort of uh, body of a quadruped right. sort of for four legs or sort of thing. Um, I've seen a griffin on uh, on that chart, and it's a beautiful gilded enameled piece. And that was the only one that I can recall of. But otherwise, there are ducks, birds, all types of birds, eagles, particularly birds of prey in mm. or forms. And um, a lot of... Uh, Yes, what we call quadrupeds, so animals with four legs that uh, we can't sometimes decipher. Either they are uh, hares, rabbits, or some sort of dogs. Um, very often there are also cheetahs, for instance, Fatimids of 11th century Egypt very much particularly loved cheetahs. Um, sometimes you find... Um, giraffes on uh, ceramics, for instance, but I haven't found any on glass. I see. I think that's a good place to end for today. (laughs) So, uh, Tanya Tolar, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Thank you. It's been lovely being here. Thank you.
It's been a pleasure having you here. And uh, for our, our folks listening in at, on at home, uh, be sure to visit our URL at medievalstudies.ceu.hu slash radio. Uh, you can send us an email at medievalradio at ceu.hu. And be sure to like us on Facebook. Thank you very much for tuning in, and goodbye.